For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet the creator of Longmire and an actor from the TV series. They are appearing together next weekend at the Tucson Festival of Books. The town of Bisbee is celebrating the seasonal return of some unsung heroes of the desert, turkey vultures. And something is definitely rotten in Denmark, as revealed in a new production at the University of Arizona. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Author Craig Johnson could not have predicted the massive popularity that his literary creation, Sheriff Walt Longmire, would one day achieve. Since 2004, Johnson has written 23 novels about him, most of them bestsellers, and there were six critically acclaimed seasons of the Longmire television series. The actor A. Martinez, who is a different guy than the voice you hear on Morning Edition, played one of Sheriff Longmire's antagonists on the show named Jacob Nighthorse. On March 12th and 13th, Johnson and Martinez will be appearing together at the Tucson Festival of Books to meet their fans and share stories from their careers. Craig Johnson begins our conversation by talking about his appreciation for the way A. Martinez approaches playing the bad guy. First off, my theory on Hollywood is only really good guys can play really good bad guys because they're the ones who can kind of turn loose like that and really just, you know, really jump into that role it's the actors that won't play a bad guy that you really kind of have to keep an eye on because they're trying to hide something, it seems like to me. Like, and so A is like one of the most giving, kindest you know, individuals I have ever met in my entire life. And that, I think, is you know, one of the reasons why it is that he can just turn loose you know, in those roles because he's like, this isn't me. So you know, he can have a good time doing that. The other thing I think that he does is he and I have discussed this you know, in, at events before, but it's kind of that like – I tend to refer to it as, you know, the Richard III syndrome, like in that, you know, Richard III does not think that he is a bad guy. He thinks that he has been maligned. He thinks he has been abused and has a perfect right, you know, to defend himself, you know, in any way that he can. And I think in many ways that's kind of the way you have to approach those characters. You can't just slap the, the, the cardboard sign on them that says bad guy. You know, the more opportunities you give them to be a fully dimensionalized character, the more opportunities you give them to show you know, different sides, you know, of their personality. And um, one of my favorite quotes from the Northern Cheyenne tribe is, is that you judge a man by the strength of his enemies. You know, one of the strengths, I think, of the books, like, and, and certainly I think also of the television show, too, is that, you know, Wald wasn't seen as this true blue, absolute good guy. I mean, he was a human being. He tried to do the right thing. Yeah, and there's also the theory that sometimes the best villains are the mirror image of the hero. A, in your perception, what do you think the contrast between Walt and Jacob is? Rivals, mirror images? Uh, you tell me. You know, I think your original premise was right on the money. And I said this to so many people. I got a little bit tired of hearing people say, oh, you're such a great bad guy. And, well, you know, hold on now. <laughs> you know, it, it's true that, that Jacob is rude. And it's true that Jacob will lie. But the sheriff, he will occasionally bend the rules 
for what he considers to be the greater good. You know, he'll cut to the chase to get what he needs to get done done. And, and that's very much, uh, in my mind, the mirror image of the way Jacob approached his uh, value system, the way he practiced his values. So I thought they had a lot more in common than was perceived by a lot of folks. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were so um, obsessed with one another. Okay, so Craig, last time we talked, uh, Next to Last Stand had just come out. And one of the things that you shared with me was the fact that it was a good rabbit hole for you to go down uh, during the beginning of the pandemic to do that research into American history and art history and come up with something that was a real change of pace. So when I heard you were coming back and I got ready to interview, I, I found out, well, son of a gun, he wrote another book already. So <laughs> so say something about the most recent in the Walt Longmire series and what made it distinctive, you know, as opposed to, say, the journey you went on for Next to Last Stand. Well, definitely Next to Last Stand was a little bit more of a comedic work. I mean, with Western history, you know, the little bighorn and Custer and, and the crazy horse, and it, it's, it's a mountain you're going to have to climb at some point in time. And for me, the, the key issue there was like finding an access point of something that would, you know, be of interest. And um, I remember seeing that Cassili Adams painting, Custer's Last Fight, like that, which you know, was euphemistically referred to as the Budweiser painting, since Augie bought it and made, I don't know, a million copies of it a year for about, you know, 40 years, like it and handed them out to every bar and restaurant and saloon, you know, in the United States. And uh, that was a fun one to do. It was definitely the first, you know, art heist, you know, book that I could have, you know, Walt involved with. Um, And then, you know, I I find myself generally going in a different direction, you know, whenever um, I try a new book. This one particularly, Daughter of the Morning Star, I was up on Harden, up on the Crow Reservation a couple of years back. And uh, a good friend of mine, Marcus Red Thunder, and I, like, and we were doing an event together, and and I was getting ready to go out, like, in the entryway of the, the library there was a bulletin board, and on the bulletin board was a missing persons poster for a young woman. One of the gut-wrenching things about it was that that poster had hung there on the bulletin board for the better part of a year, so long, in fact, that, you know, when the sun would come out and move its way all the way around that entryway to the through the glass doors, it would go halfway across that poster and then stop, you know, before it got dark. And so half of that young woman's face and half the information, you know, about her was missing. It just struck me. I thought that's probably one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you to have a a loved one, you know, just completely disappear and you don't know what happened to them or where they are or why or anything. And it got me thinking about it. And so I started doing a little bit of research and got to remember this is a couple of years back and even at that point, you know, there was such an epidemic of murdered and missing indigenous women that it was stunning to me when I started reading the statistics. And so I thought, okay, this is an issue that I, I need to, you know, to take a crack at. And so Daughter of the Morning Star was, was born. And, you know, it's been an eye-opener as we've continued, you know, in this this. Uh, um, this amazing, you know, uh, learning experience of finding out, you know, just how horrid, you know, this, this situation is. The statistics that I actually sent back to Viking Penguin in New York, they asked me about it in the acknowledgement. They said, are these statistics, are you sure these are right? And I'm like, yeah. yes, I'm absolutely sure that they're right. Um, and it kind of culminated, I have to admit, you know, here about a week ago um, when A was able to make um, – the announcement of a donation that we made to the uh, Murdered Missing Indigenous Women's Resource Center up in Lame Deer. Um, the Longmire Foundation, through Longmire Days, was able to, to make a $30,000 donation to the resource center like that and to try and like get some 
some visibility, you know, for this issue that is just an absolute plague um, going on in Indian country. Um, it, it just doesn't even seem real. Um, it's so horrifying. It just begged, you know, to be included in this book. And, uh, you know, it, it'll continue on. Like, it's a big enough story like that, that I could continue it on into the, the next book that will be coming out in September, Helen Back. It is a great book. I mean, the moment I finished it, and you know, you dropped the seed in it that, Walt was going to go ahead and pursue this, even though everyone in the right mind was telling him, "Don't you dare!" Um, <laughs> you know, I just think I just think it's my appetite was provoked to, to see the next book. I'm so glad that it's close. I just love what you did with it, Craig, on, on so many levels. You know that you got into the mysticism of the cultures beyond the, the cool stuff about about basketball and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what, why is somebody getting death threats and stuff? Just a phenomenal book. I, this is Thank me you. just saying, yeah, I can't recommend it more highly. It's a phenomenal <laughs> book. Daughter of the Morning you, Star. Yeah, you're welcome, sir. <laughs> um, in closing, gentlemen, uh, Craig, I have to ask you a question that arose the last time we talked. I asked you about the population of Ucross, and somehow we ended up talking about raccoons. And... <laughs> <laughs> They count. I'm forever going to be known in Arizona as the raccoon rancher. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told me about you had a particularly vicious one in a have a heart trap and you were going to take them and release them, which is what you do. Uh, but the number was 79 that you had you had yeah. collected up to that point. That seems... Yeah, you would, you would think I was running a raccoon ranch or something yeah. like that, but I don't know. I mean, because I, I asked the Game and Fish guys about this, and they were like, you know what, there are just certain years where the population of certain animals just explodes. And, uh, you know, obviously that year was a big raccoon year. But I, I discovered, and, and this is amazing, like that, because this is a, this is a technology story. The, the cowboy from a town of 25, I have no knowledge of technology whatsoever. The fact that I can be able to talk on the phone is really kind of amazing. Like, but um, <laughs> what I discovered was that, put, that put a, finally put an end to it, motion sensor lights in the barn. Um, what I did was put motion sensor lights around the tack shed and in the tack shed. Yeah. And so whenever the raccoons would start to go into the tack shed, the lights would come on and they would run off. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> well, congratulations. Good. Welcome to the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Author Craig Johnson and actor A. Martinez will be keeping busy during the Tucson Festival of Books with Q&A appearances and autograph sessions this March 12th and 13th on the UA campus. The complete schedule of events is available at tucsonfestivalofbooks.org. The Sonoran Desert is known for many birds, including the cactus wren and the roadrunner, but they don't have public festivals in their honor. The turkey vulture, however, does. Itai Sofer has the story. I'm Cato Daly, and I am a resident of Bisbee, Arizona. I'm the informal head of an informal organization that puts on the return of the turkey vulture celebration. The turkey vultures return 
to Bisbee. They migrate back to Bisbee about the second week in March. And people of Bisbee just love it. They're here all summer. We watch them kettle in the sky, circle in the thermals, and roost in the cottonwood trees. While many show up in costume to the festival decorated in bird paraphernalia, Daly explained why you won't see costumes there featuring actual turkey vulture feathers. Because they're a migrating bird, they're protected. So it's illegal to kill them. It's illegal to use any, of course, body parts from them. And that's part of the purpose of this festival. They are our refuse workers of the sky, and they keep our streets clean. They keep the disease down by eating diseased animals and dead animals. And so we really should be celebrating them as a really key piece of our ecosystem. I also spoke with Laura Hackett, a biologist at Liberty Wildlife in Phoenix. Part of her job is working with the turkey vultures there. The turkey vulture is definitely in the vulture family related to those large California condors, which are the big vultures. They probably get the name turkey vulture because they have that bright red head. Because we also have the black vultures in Arizona and they have the black head. Where are they migrating from? How do they end up here in southern Arizona? We actually in Arizona, especially coming up from Mexico through Bisbee, through Phoenix, and, and all the way up north, are on a great uh, migration flyway. So the turkey vultures will go far south down into central Mexico and maybe even northern South America. All the way up north, there's actually a population that goes all the way up to Ohio. And researchers are actually still trying to figure out where exactly their ending point is and why certain ones end up here while others go up further north. We always like to say that the turkey vultures were green before green was cool because they are the best conservationists out there. They pick up all the decaying meat on the ground and clean up our our earth for that. And then what happens is they actually can digest it and get rid of any of the toxins that are in there. So they don't have any anthrax or botulism or anything. They are immune to anything in there. They clean it up in their gut and then it comes out the other end and can fertilize the ground for us, but it's totally clean. So there is no disease getting passed around. So they're actually our garbage men, our recyclers. So it's really great to have them around. They also um, knew about solar power before we did. They will actually slow their body temperatures down at night um, and kind of roost and stay cool and sleep and not use all that energy to keep them warm. And then in the morning, you'll see them spreading out their wings to absorb the solar energy from the sun to warm their body temperatures back up so that then they can have a full day of soaring and eating in front of them. However, Hackett explained that handling these large scavengers around children and other guests at Liberty Wildlife requires special care and things can get messy. Many of us have had the experience where the turkey vulture may have eaten an hour or two beforehand, and we bring them out for a program, and if something scares them, if there's a kid that's moving around too much or a balloon in the background or something that just scares them, their first instinct is to throw everything back up. And now if you're an animal that has eaten something that is already a couple of days old, maybe not so tasty to begin with, You can imagine what it's like coming back up. There is a very strong smell that can clear a room. Laura Hackett also told me about her favorite turkey vulture. Bailey is a turkey vulture here that I really like. He was actually born at the Phoenix Zoo, so he's never been out in the wild. He's always been around people. And like people, he is very picky about who he wants to be friends with. Back to festival organizer Cato Daly and Bisbee. 
While there is certainly a lot to celebrate about these birds, I also wanted to know if residents of Bisbee were ever inconvenienced by some of the birds' more unsavory behavior. I was in front of the post office a couple of years ago raising money and talking about how wonderful these birds are and such. Somebody came up to me and she said, I have had to move out of my house because of these birds. And I thought, oh, no, this is terrible. She said, because they roost in the cottonwood above my house and they poop all over the roof and the smell, she said, drove me out of the house. <laughs> so they're not the most savory animals to have right in your neighborhood or over your house, but they certainly, like I said, are valuable to have. Daly also created a pamphlet for the event that features recipes from local restaurants related to the diet of the turkey vulture. Here is a suggested cocktail. You do a base mixture of V8 juice with some horseradish and Worcestershire sauce, celery salt, Tabasco to taste. And then as a garnish, you can put in some meat, a thin slice of turkey, an olive, and a dill pickle, and a toothpick. Oh, can't forget the alcohol, so throw in some vodka there. The Return of the Turkey Vulture Festival will be held on March 12th at Vista Park in Bisbee, and it is open to the public. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Itai Sofer. At some point, each of us has wished for a second chance, an opportunity to correct a mistake or choose a different path in our lives. With the help of some magical intervention, three of William Shakespeare's most famous female characters, Ophelia, Juliet, and Lady Macbeth, receive second chances at life, sort of. Living Dead in Denmark is a play by Kui Wen. It's a zombie-infested action horror comedy sequel to Hamlet. Next, I'll talk with the director and three performers from the new University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television production. It proves that something truly is rotten in Denmark. My name is Ines Brown. I am a theater film director. I'm from Argentina, and I'm here at the University of Arizona as a guest artist. How did this play come to your attention? Well, uh, I was reached out by um, the head of the musical and theater department, Hank Stratton. He asked me to come and, you know, and be the guest artist for this production here in Tucson. And as soon as I read the play, I thought it was going to be a very, very fun project. This is not the kind of play that I've been working on. It's like an action horror play. But on the other hand, there are some themes of the play that are like my favorite themes. Rebirth, um, female empowerment, and how women can get the chance of reshaping their narratives and becoming the protagonist of their lives. My name is Emma Sage and I play Ophelia. So Ophelia is a character that comes with a lot of history attached. And I understand that she's not exactly alone in this play. She has some sister characters from Shakespeare alongside her. That would be uh, Juliet and Lady Macbeth. That's a power trio. Yeah, yeah, definitely a girl gang there. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of fiction these days that appeals to people that is based on second chances. What kind of a second chance do you think these characters are getting in this play? Well, for my character specifically, um, she gets a chance to kind of be a whole new woman. Um, the Ophelia in this play, it's just so different than in Shakespeare's Hamlet. 
She is controlled by men in her past. That um, makes a big difference on the choices that she makes. And in this rendition, what I love about this play is that Ophelia is just a really cool, strong woman character. She's one of the best fighters and she doesn't like take any crap from anyone. And so I think for Ophelia specifically, it's great to have a second chance to be like a strong person. And she is reborn and she has this new fight for life, which I really like too. Hi, I'm Brennan Halsey and I'm going to be playing Hamlet in the show. What was your first impression with what this material was and what this play might have to say. I was familiar with the writer of the play. I've seen a couple of his productions and I was very impressed by his creativity and his use of pop culture within the show. So I was excited to work on a piece by him as well. And it had a lot of fun characters and a lot of action that I thought would be a lot of fun to work on. Well, now you've been a few days or weeks into rehearsal. Are you still feeling that way? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun to play around with some of the lines and figure out what is the best way to have it land for the audience and um, what does it mean for the character? What does it mean for the overall narrative? Does the play tell us how long has passed since the events of Hamlet? It gives us a rough estimate of about five years. So did you take that into calculation when you were thinking about what kind of a man Hamlet had grown into? Yeah, so Hamlet has become a lot more jaded, a lot more cynical. He essentially becomes a sort of antagonist or villainous character in this show. Emma, do you think that Ophelia is happy about being back, having, a, as we mentioned before, a second chance to um, work through these issues? <laughs> I honestly think at first, no. I think she's upset. I mean, not to be too dark here, but I think she wanted to drown. I think she wanted to just end everything. And so it's definitely a shock for her when she wakes up. You know, she didn't get what she wanted in that moment. Um, I think throughout the play, though, she finds her footing as a person. Um, and I think she starts to really like living and becomes a better fighter. She stands up for herself against Hamlet. Um, by the end, she definitely has a lot to live for. Hi, my name is Alex Simpson, and I am playing Fortinbras and writing some of the additional music. Fortinbras's story is a little more unknown to me than Hamlet and Ophelia. Uh, what can you say about his character and what you uh, are finding as you explore him on stage? I was familiar with Fortinbras in Hamlet beforehand, but he's one of those characters that you kind of forget about if you're not careful because he doesn't have a huge part to play in that story. And in this story, he becomes very much an ever-present element of the show. He, um, he's the one who revives Ophelia and uh, she fights for him uh, through most of the show. What's his um, motivation for reviving her? This is something that is never mentioned in the script, so it's something we've been working <laughs> with. But it's sort of like how a lot of us feel with COVID, I think. Um, this pandemic, this zombie plague, interrupted Fortinbras' reign and this kind of destiny that he was supposed to manifest. And so this is his way of reclaiming that and uh, still expanding Norway and still expanding his power. And um, also it, it's partially personal um, as Hamlet's father killed Fortinbras's father. So I think there's a, a lot of um, revenge riding on uh, his decision to do so. Ophelia is a really important 
person to Hamlet. So we've also been working from the idea that she is a very important piece of this plan to lure him in. Can you share with me something, a value, a lesson, or a purpose to this piece that you hope will resonate with people and that they'll remember long after they've seen it? Well, I think one of my favorite lines is actually Ophelia's line. She says this to Horatio. She says, well, if I'm going to die a second time, I, I, I really want to die fighting. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm quoting it exactly, but yeah. so, you know, for me that encompass a little bit, you know, the full message of the play. She died by drowning, which is, as she says, like the worst way of dying. So, you know, if she's going to die again, she's going to do it through fighting. She's going to be bold. She's going to be courageous. And I feel that that's kind of, a, in a way, for me, what, resonate, what resonated with the play when I read it is this idea of characters having a second time and becoming the protagonist of their own lives. Yeah, adding on to that, I think one thing I really take from this is, you know, as humans, we really get stuck in who we are and we think, like, just because we've been a certain way for a long time that we have to continue that. And I don't think that's true. I think that you could wake up tomorrow and decide to change your life if you really wanted to. And so I think this show really shows that you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah, I think something that I am excited about this show for and I hope audiences take away is that sometimes theater doesn't have to, I feel like it's so often associated with these like heavy dramatic subjects, but sometimes it can just be a fun, blood-soaked battle royale where all of Shakespeare's characters are fighting it out and having a good time and you know you can go and distract yourself for a couple hours and have a good laugh and enjoy yourself. Alex, do you have something else you'd like to add to this group of themes that perhaps Living Dead in Denmark has to share with modern audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to bounce off of Inez's of, I hope this inspires people to take ownership of uh, their lives and their actions, because this is what I think all of us get the chance to do in this play as characters. And I think the best message for that comes from my own character, Fortinbras, of don't try and control the other people along the way. Listen to what's happening around you and respond to that as it is. The University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television presents Living Dead in Denmark, with performances now through March 20th at the Tornabeen Theater on campus. Ticket information and photos of the cast can be found on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Itai Sofer. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.